it's so cool uh, for me to watch Vasos get baptized today. Vasos entered into my life about 10 years ago uh, when I did the young adult ministry and we became fast friends. And so uh, being able to walk with him over these last 10 years and watch him go through great joys and trials and even walk through the valley of the shadow at times in his life and to see God over the last year and a half show his faithfulness to Vasos in a way that Vasos is committing his life to following Jesus and entering into the waters of baptism today. Man, just a real, uh, real joy for me personally in this. And as I was watching the video with Pastor Brad, we thought, you know, if we ever did like a bad Christian drama, you know, um, and that Vasos could be our Jesus. And so with that... (laughs) That long hair and the Greek, yeah, the Greek look, all that, yeah. So, hey, if you're here today and, uh, and you have uh, made the decision to follow Jesus, I would encourage you to get baptized. Uh, bapti- baptism is an outward expression of the inward reality that we're experiencing as Christians. And uh, if you want to go down that journey with us, uh, we make it really easy. You can just simply text the word uh, next to the number on the screen, 720-513-1933. Uh, Doug is on the other end of that line, and he will walk with you through the whole process of being baptized, being able to share your story to the point of uh, getting dunked here. And so if that's something that you're interested in doing, I would encourage you uh, to go about doing that. Well, today, as we jump into what God has for us, we are in the final week uh, of our series called Make Money Work, where we're looking at our personal finances and specifically what God has to say about our finances. Now, as we've gathered together over these last five weeks, and uh, we are looking at really kind of five big ideas uh, when it comes to money. So if you're brand new with us or you haven't been uh, tuning in, this will just kind of serve as a catch-up for everybody else. It'll be a review. But week one, we looked at really the decisions that we make when it comes to our money that every decision that we make, every financial decision we make tells us something about our heart, whether good, bad, you know, positive, negative. Every decision that we make when it comes to our finances tells us something about our heart. Then in the second week, we looked at really what it looks like to find contentment, and we found that so many of us actually find our satisfaction, our satisfaction is derived from our discontent, that we're constantly chasing newer, better, cooler, shinier in this world, and that as we open up the scriptures, we find that true satisfaction comes when we pair contentment with godliness. Then week three, we talked about debt and the stress that comes with it and how we deal with the stress in our lives. Last week, we looked at giving it away, that there's this opportunity in the scriptures that says that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Jesus actually said that. And that there's this reality in us that when it comes to making our money work, that there's a part of that that leads to very, being very generous with the finances and the resources that God's given to us. If you missed any of those four, you can find those on YouTube, Crossroads ABC YouTube. All of our archives are there. And that will get you caught up for today, which we're talking about some budgeting magic and specifically priorities, all right? Now, as we jump into this theme of budgeting and priorities, we can't talk about those two issues unless we first talk about goals, about goals, all right? So if you're taking notes today or if you're not taking notes, just put this in your head, but I want you to be able to answer this question for yourself, all right? This question right here, that what is your goal when it comes to your finances? Like, what is the one goal that you have when it comes to your finances? If you could summarize your finances, your money, kind of in just one objective, one goal, what would it be? For some of you, I imagine that you would go, man, like, if I was being honest, like, I'm not sure I would know what my goal is. Like, I'm sure that I have some goals and I have some priorities when it comes to my money, but I'm not, I'm not sure, like, if I could actually answer that question. For others of you, you go, man, this is really easy. My goal is to make as much money as I can. 
right? For others of you, you go, man, I'm a saver. So my goal is to save as much money as I can. In fact, when I walk by you, I squeak. That's how cheap I am, right? Like, like for some of you, that's, for others of you, you would never write this one down. But for some of you, you would go, man, my goal is to spend, 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 right? Like I wanna spend all the money that I can. And if you have a lot of consumer debt, apparently that's probably something that drives you. Maybe for some of you, you would go, you know, my, my goal is to be financially free to be able to do whatever it is that I, that I wanna do in this world, that I wanna be financially free. See, the truth of the matter is, whether we know it or not, every single one of us has a goal when it comes to our finances. Every single one of us has an objective when it comes to our money. And in and of themselves, none of those things that I just listed, none of those goals that I just listed are, are bad things. In fact, many of them are good. Raise your hand if you wanna make money in this world. Just go ahead, yeah, yeah. Raise two if you wanna make more, right? <laughs> like all of us, right? Like it's good to, to have goals when it comes to saving. And if you're gonna live in this life, you're gonna to have to spend some money. And we do, we wanna give money away and to be financially free, like wow, that would be, that would be an amazing experience. So in light of all of those goals, that we have, maybe said or unsaid, where I really wanna focus on us today is a question that probably not very many of us have ever asked or even considered when it comes to our money and what our goal is. And it's this question right here that I wanna ask, is what would God say your financial goal should be? Like, what would God, if he was right here right now, say that your goal for your money should be? See, the reason this question is so important is because the whole reason we're doing this series is because we've made an assumption that you being here on Fort Lupton, online, here at Thornton, listening to a podcast, that there's an assumption that we're making that you are at least interested, at least interested in what God has to say about your life. And that includes your finances. And what we've discovered in this series over the last couple of weeks is that we cannot be in sync with God relationally and be out of sync with what he says when it comes to our finances. Just like everything in life, that when it comes to, to doing it our own way, living by our own rules, that oftentimes that leads us to being out of sync with God relationally. And as we've looked over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that God has so much to say about money, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so the question, this question, that we look at, like, like what's God's goal for your finances? If we're not able to answer that question, how in the world can we ever be in sync relationally with God when it comes to this area of our lives? So today, to the best of my ability in the few minutes that we have together, I'm going to try to answer this question scripturally for us together. Like what is the one goal that should guard and, and drive and, and how I can make decisions? What's the one lens that I push all of my financial decisions through? Like what is the one objective that will give me direction in my life when it comes to my income and my spending and my saving and my investments and, and my debt and even my lifestyle? So that's what we're gonna talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna ask you to open it up to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29. That's where we're gonna live for a little bit today. Now, we looked at these verses briefly in week one. Today, we're gonna to take a little deeper look at them because in them, it actually begins to help us discover the answer to the question that we're asking. Now, when it comes to this passage, maybe a little like history lesson would be helpful here to put it into context so the story at least makes sense of what we're looking at today that going all the way back to uh, before or after God delivered Israel, the Hebrew people, 
from Egypt. If you remember the story, God through Moses, the let my people go guy, he delivers the Hebrew people from Egypt, that they were living in slavery under the Egyptian rule, under Pharaoh, and Moses comes in and he's like, let my people go, and him and Pharaoh get into it for a bit, and eventually Moses leads the Hebrew people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and into the desert. You remember this story? Eventually, they end up, three months later, at this place called Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, the Hebrew people constructed and built this tent-like structure called the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelled, it was the place where God's presence was at, and it was the place that they would put together, and they would carry it with them everywhere, and they would put it together so that they could worship and serve God. And so in this tent-like structure was also what we call the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Indiana Jones? That, the Ark of the Covenant, and that in the Ark of the Covenant was where the tablets that held the Ten Commandments were placed. And so all of this was put together so that wherever Israel went, wherever the Hebrew people went, that they would have God's presence and dwelling and be able to worship him there. So from that moment in Mount Sinai, fast forward about 400 years, and all of a sudden, the Hebrew people are pretty well established. They become known as the nation of Israel. In fact, during this time, many people would consider them a superpower uh, in the world. And the kings like Saul and David, they built their palaces, the people built their homes, and out in the valley, God stayed in a tent. Like, basically, everybody got a home except for God. He was still living in this tent. And so one day, David's looking out his window of the palace, and he's looking across the valley probably, and he sees the tent that God's living in, and he goes, man, I got this bright idea. We're going to build God a home. I'm going to build God a home. That We're going to build a structure, a temple, where people not just from Israel but from all over the world can come and serve and worship God. And so he sets out on this campaign to build God a home. Well, later that night, as he's sleeping, God comes to him and speaks to him and says, David, like, I love your heart. I know that you love me. I know that you have this desire to build my home, but I cannot let you build my house. That you are a king of war. That you have blood on your hands. That, that I can't let you do this. I, I appreciate your desire. I know that you love me. But you're not going to be the one who builds my home. In fact, your son Solomon's going to build it for me. And what's amazing in the story is that David doesn't do what I would have done, which was pout and cry about this. He goes, okay, God, I get it. I understand. And so what he does is he goes, I'm going to just determine to spend the rest of my life getting everything ready so that my son can build God's home. So he launches the Build God a Home campaign. And in the midst of this amazing little story about building God a home, he reveals to us a financial principle, a, a principle about money that helps us answer the question that we're seeking today. If you have your Bibles, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, here's where the story begins. And David, the king, said to all of the assembly. Now, the assembly is the nation. Remember, he's the king over the nation of Israel. He's gathered the whole nation together, and he's making this, this assembly, this decree. He's speaking to them, and he says, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, that this is the person that God's picked to build his home. He's young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for things that are gold, and the silver for things that are silver, and bronze for bronze, iron for iron, so on and so forth, that all of this stuff is coming out of the treasury of the nation. David says, we're gonna start this, we're gonna build God a home campaign, and we're going to do so, and I'm going to open up the treasury of the nation, and I'm going to start funding this so that we can get this done. 
Moreover, verse 3, in addition to all that I have provided from the holy house, that's the nation's treasury, I have treasure of my own. This is his own personal wealth. He says, I'm going to give gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of gold of a fur, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls in the house and for all the work that the craftsmen are going to do. And so David goes, as your king, I want you to know that I'm all in. I'm not just going to, to open up the national treasury and pay for it that way, but I'm actually coming to the table with my own wealth. And when we read this, it's kind of lost on us, but this is a ridiculous amount of wealth that David's putting forward. In fact, most modern-day scholars would say that it is in the billions of dollars that David gave to build God a home. So David says, look, I'm all in as your king. And then he turns around to the people and he says, all this work's going to be done by craftsmen. Gold for things that are gold, silver for things that are silver. And then he looks at the people and he says, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? In other words, who's going to join me in this? Who's willing to step up and, and to be a part of Build God a Home campaign? Verse 6. Then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes. That David says, look, this is what I'm putting forth. I'm opening up the national treasury. I'm doing this personal. Who's with me? And the nation of Israel goes, we're in. We're going to build God a home. And they give so generously to this. It's quite amazing how generous they are in all of this. And they, and they give to this. And after this fundraising campaign is all over, King David looks over all of it. And he's so moved by what he sees. He's so moved by the devotion of the people to build God a home that he begins to pray this prayer of thanksgiving. And in this prayer, he reveals the answer to our question. See if you catch it. Verse 10, he says this, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. So he's praying over all of the nation. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O God. And you are the one that's exalted as head above it all. Both riches and honor, they come from you and you rule over it all. That in your hand is might and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. That David looks out and he says, in other words, he goes, look, none of this is mine, God. Like, like all of this is yours. You're the one who's great. It's your majesty that's here. You're the one who gets the victory. You're the one who has the strength and the power and the glory. That this is all you. This is all about you. Everything in life is ultimately about you. For everything in heaven and under the earth, Lord, it is all yours. And David says, everything that I have, my wealth and my honor, God, they come from you. And everything that my people have, the nation of Israel, their wealth, their honor, it comes from you. And everybody in the world, their wealth and their honor, that ultimately the things that you have, that they come from God. You're the one who, who doles it out, who gives lavishly both riches and honor to us. He wraps up the prayer in verse 13. He says this, And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly 
For all things come from you, and of your own we have, have we given you. David says, how amazing is it that you've entrusted us with all of this, and now we get to be the ones chosen by you to build your home. Like, like you could have chosen anybody in the entire world, but you chose us to do this. And David is so excited, and the reason that King David is so excited is because he remembers something that we oftentimes forget, and it's this principle, that God owns it all, and I'm just his money manager. God owns it all, and I'm just his money manager. That this principle is so powerful. David says, all things, everything comes from you, and God, we have only given by which that you have already given to us. What's already come out of your hands. Now, before we freak out, and I know our tendency when it comes to this particular principle is to freak out a little bit, but before you freak out, let me tell you this is nothing new in your life. In fact, let me tell you a story that demonstrates how regular this is in our lives, all right? If you're a parent, you'll understand this. A couple of weeks ago, I walked into the room that my daughter arranges as her own. She arranges all of her stuff, like it's in this, all of this great, you know, area, and she has it arranged just the way that she likes it. And so I walked into that room, and she looked at me, and she said, Daddy, you can't just walk into my room whenever you want to. <laughs> and so I kind of looked around, and sure enough, it looked like her room. I mean, on the door, it said, Mercy, you know? She has her stuffed animals, she's got her books, she's got clothes on, you know, everywhere. Like, like it looked like her room. And so I looked at her and I said, oh honey, <laughs> you're mistaken. This is daddy's room. You're just managing it for me. And by the looks of it, you're not doing a very good job, right? There's books on the floor and clothes everywhere. Like, like you need to manage this room better. Oh, and by the way, your Gigi's coming in a couple weeks, so I'm gonna need your room. All right, you're gonna have to move out of your room, right? Same thing here, same thing here. We go, this is my stuff. And God goes, no, 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 no. This is my stuff. I'm just letting you manage it for me. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. If everything that we have, and Jesus echoes this in the New Testament, if everything that we have belongs to God, if everything comes from God, if everything is distributed by God by the way that he sees fit, if that's the case, then the one thing that should drive all of our financial decisions, the one goal that we should have when it comes to our finances, scripturally speaking, is this, is that your goal for your finances is to be a wise manager of the resources that God has entrusted you with by honoring him with them. That if David's true and what Jesus has to say in the New Testament is true, then there's one goal when it comes to God. God says that your one goal when it comes to your finances is to be a wise manager of the resources that I've entrusted you with and for you to honor me with them. That your goal in this life is not to make as much money as you can, it's not to save as much as you can, it's not to give it all away, it's not to spend, 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 that you have one goal and your goal is to be a wise manager of the resources that God has given you by which you honor him with them. That's the goal, that's the goal. And that means that the decisions that we make not only apply to the resources, the wealth, the money that God has given into us in our hands now, but also the wealth and the resources that we have yet to realize 
in our lives. And so what does this look like then to live this out practically in our lives? Well, Proverbs chapter 27 gives us some understanding of this. Solomon, King Solomon's writing these words to his son, wisest man who ever lived. He said this, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds for riches do not last forever and does a crown endure to all generations. What Solomon is saying here in an agricultural society is that the way that you evaluated wealth was by your flocks and your herds. And Solomon says, these are the resources, this is the wealth that God's given to you. And as a wise steward, an honorable steward, that you need to know the condition, you need to pay attention to what God has given to you in this life. That you need to know what God has given to you when it comes to your money. You need to be paying attention to this. You need to be accounting for it well. So when it comes to the way that we use money and our priorities of money, there's basically three ways that we can use it, right? We can spend it for things that we live on, right? We can save it for the future, or we can give it for causes and needs, right? Like basically when it comes to living this life, there's three things that you can do with your money. You can spend it, you can save it, or you can give it. That's basically what it comes down to. Now, unfortunately, for most of America and even Western Christians, that's the way that we prioritize our money, don't we? That we spend all that we can now to live on, we save a little bit for the future, and if there's any extra, that's what we give. But what if we, having learned everything that we've learned over these last five weeks, decided, you know what, we're going to live differently. That I'm gonna prioritize my life to show that my goal when it comes to my finances is not just to get rich, it's not just to make money and to spend money and to save money, but that when it comes to my goal financially, my one goal is to show that I am a wise and honorable steward of the resources that God has given me. Like, like what would that look like in your life? Well, I know two things about you. The first thing that I know about you is this, is that every single one of you lives on a percentage of your income. I know, that's a bright thought, isn't it? That every single one of you lives on a percentage of your income. I know that about you. Number two, what I know about you is that probably most of you don't know what that percentage is. That if I asked you, what percentage of income do you live on? You'd go, I don't know, like it's gone at the end of the month, 100%, right? And maybe that's true, unless you have some credit card debts. Then you're closer to 105 to 110% of your income. If you're an average American with a car payment and a house payment, now you're closer to 130% of your income. It doesn't take a math major to figure out that that kind of math doesn't work, does it? You bring in 100% and you spend 130%, and yet that's where most Americans, even most Christians, live today. So if you're gonna be a wise steward, if you're gonna be a wise steward, here's my challenge to you, is to figure out what percentage you need to live on? What is the percentage that you need to live on in this life? Like this moves us out of accidental living, which is what we do now. We just spend it until it's gone. And we look at our finances instead. We go, look, we're wise stewards. We want to honor God with this. We're going to be intentional with our finances. And so my challenge to you is to go, well, what does those percentages look like? Like, what if you in, in your life said, look, like, like I'm going to start thinking in terms of percentages, not dollars. Because when you start to think percentages, not dollars, you begin to flip your thinking and instead of prioritizing live, spend, give, you go, what would it look like if I was actually to, to give first, like we talked about last week? 
that I'm gonna give a percentage of my income first. Not dollars, a percentage of my income first. And then I'm gonna to put together a percentage to save for the future. And then what's ever left, that's what I'm gonna live on. Like how differently would our lives look like if we decided to live that way? And for some of you, or maybe even most of you, you're going, well, <laughs> like, I don't even know what that would look like. like. Like, what would you suggest? And if you were asking me what I would suggest, it would look like this. That your first 10%, that it would go to God. And then your second 10%, that you would save that for the future. And then you would save 10% for emergencies. And then 70% is what you would have left to live on. Now, I know that as I present this to you, you go, <laughs> not a chance, right? Like, like, who could ever live that way? Well, let me inspire you a bit. That many of you probably know Pastor Rick here at Crossroads Church. Pastor Rick is part of our pastoral care department here. He spends his time counseling, doing counseling for you. He runs our benevolence office and uh, oversees part of our Stephen Care ministry here at Crossroads. Now, Pastor Rick, uh, in this, uh, when he comes to his story, let me just kind of to share it for you. That probably what you don't know about Pastor Rick is that for the first 57 years of his life, he was not in ministry. He was not a pastor. In fact, when he was 18 years old, he got his first job and he was driving a forklift in a warehouse. And Rick's dream was to become a golf pro on the PGA Tour. Like that's what he wanted to do. So at age 21, he moved to Denver to live with his mom and to pursue his dream as a PGA pro because the opportunity was here uh, more so than it was in Iowa where he lived. Now, sadly, that dream to be a PGA pro kind of faded, and he got a job working at a warehouse, starting as a forklift manager, but over the next 21 years, uh, became the manager of that warehouse. Well, after 21 years, the, the company that he worked for decided to shut up the warehouse here and move it. Rick was going through a rough time in his life. He's losing his job. He's going through a divorce, and eventually he ends up at a car dealership selling cars, and over 13 years, begins to manage that place as in that car dealership. Now, if Rick was up here today telling you, he would tell you that through the ups and downs of life, through marriage and kids and divorce and remarriage and church, that he always had this goal in mind, to be a wise steward and to honor God with his money. Living out the simple principle, 10% to God, 10% I'm gonna save for my future, 10% I'm gonna save for emergencies, and then the 70% I'm going to live on in my life. He's just a regular guy, working a regular job, and at 55 years old, Rick was in a spot financially to be able to retire. And his dream in retirement was to move back to Iowa, to help his brother with the church that he's pastor of, and then to pursue the PGA Tour as a senior PGA guy. And as Rick started to pursue that career in golf, God spoke to him in a new and fresh way. And at 57 years old, God brought him deeper in here at Crossroads. And he began to work in, 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 our, uh, in our benevolence, working with people who would come in, who would be in need, whether those are bills that they couldn't pay or needs of prayer or, or whatever that looked like. And, and Rick would receive them in and help them and, and really steward over the finances that you give to our benevolence. And in 2018, we saw the giftings that, that God had given Rick. We saw his passion for people. And we said, you know what? This guy, we need to license him as a pastor. And so in 2018, he was licensed as a pastor to work in our care ministry. And he's been serving close to 40 hours a week, volunteering 40 hours a week, every week doing so. He's like one of my real life heroes. 
His wife, Crystal, is equally awesome at money, and she serves on our trustee board, making sure the money that you give to this church is, is used well and, and that we're good stewards over those finances. And when I was listening to Rick's story, he said something to me that, that just kind of stuck with me. He said this. He said, Matt, he said, I'm not a rich dude, but I get to do what I love. I'm a lay pastor helping people and showing them Jesus. Just a regular guy who decided that he would do things differently when it came to his personal finances. His entire life, he just lived by the principle, I'm gonna give 10, I'm gonna save 10 for the future, 10 for emergencies, and I'm gonna live off of the 70% that was left. And he had enough money to retire in his mid-50s, and he's financially free to be used by God wherever God would have him be used. And right now, that's serving you as one of your pastors here at Crossroads. Just imagine with me for a moment, just for a moment, if our real goal, our ultimate goal, was to do what God said, to be a, a wise steward of the resources that he's given to us in order to, to honor him with that, we would have to admit that, that our priorities would look a little bit different one day. They wouldn't be what the average American's priorities are, right? Like, like spend, save, give. But we would actually start to think, like, what would it look like to turn those three things around? When you get paid to do whatever job that you do, what would it look like if you gave a percentage of your money to God's kingdom first? And then you said, I'm gonna save some money for my future next, and then whatever's left, I'm gonna live on the rest of that. I'm telling you, if you made that decision in your life, that you would throw open the doors to God's involvement in your life financially, to your financial well-being. So as I wrap all this up, I wanna ask you one more question. Because as your pastor, I can teach you through the word of God what it looks like to make your money work. Like, we can do that. But as your pastor, more than concerned about your money, I'm concerned about your soul. And so if I was to ask you one more question concerning your soul, it would be this one. If your soul was on a budget, what would those expenses look like to you? And maybe you would say today that, Matt, you know, when it comes to my time, 70% of my time is, is given to my work. Another 20% is given to my family and my relationships. And then 10% is, is used for whatever's left. Whatever combination is, is fine. But, but how do you budget? If your soul was on a budget, what would those expenses look like for you in this life? See, intrinsically we know that there's a difference between our money and our souls, isn't there? Your money is never going to outlive your soul. Your money will never outlive your soul. And once you're dead, it'll be as if all of that money that you accumulated in your life doesn't even exist anymore. After death, however, your soul is gonna go on, either in the presence of God or separated from the presence of God. Isaiah, one of the great prophets of Israel, wrote these words concerning money in our soul. This is chapter 55, verse 2. It says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Hear that your soul may live. Isaiah looks out at us and he says, look, you can spend your money on a lot of things. He says, what are you doing for your soul that it can live? 
And he talks about spending our lives in ways that bring about delights of food. And, and the delights of food here is just a picture of what our relationship with God, specifically our relationship with Jesus, looks like. That he came into this world, lived a perfect life, forgiving your sins by dying on the cross, so that when he becomes your Lord and Savior, that you get to delight in him, and your soul, it gets to live. It gets to live. And all of that begins by saying, God, I'm inviting Jesus into my life to do whatever he wants. That I'm giving every aspect of my life to him, including my finances. Would you come in and be my Lord and Savior? And the promise of scripture is that when we do that, our soul is awakened and our soul is alive. If you want to have that conversation of what that looks like, you can text the word Jesus to this number, 720-513-1933, and we would be honored to have that conversation with you. Would you pray with me? Father, as we wrap up this series on finances, and God, I'm grateful for all of your words throughout Scripture. Lord, verses that we weren't even able to get to in these five weeks. Lord, that you've given us so much to align our lives in this area to you. And God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, the discernment, the discipline to be wise stewards of all of the resources that you give us. That when we look out at our money and all the things that we could do with our money, Lord, I pray that it would be true of this church, of the people of this church, that our goal would be wise stewards and to use the resources to honor you well. And Lord, while we talk about money, and Lord, it is a significant part of our lives, Lord, we know it's not the most significant. That the most significant part of any one of us is our soul. And the hard reality that, that every single one of us is going to spend eternity somewhere, either with you or apart from you. And so today, God, I pray that you would be whispering to the hearts of people. And Lord, that you would awaken souls and that souls would, would find their delight like eating good food in you. Lord, thank you for your presence, your being. Thank you that we get to celebrate what you did on the cross for us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Together as we come together for communion, we're reminded of the cost of our soul to live. And we do so with food. Admittedly, mine more delicious than yours. But we remember that when Jesus was with the disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat delight in it. So we do. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins so that your soul may live. And so we drink and we remember today. And in our celebration, we sing and we commune with God in prayer. And so if you need prayer, I'd invite you to, to go over to this banner to get prayer online. You can click the button. In-house, I'm gonna invite you to stand as we sing together. Uh, these good songs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus.